turn with me to the book of James. In a moment, they'll be passing you out a, a sheet trying to do something new. I'll give you all a copy of my outline. Oh, they have it right there. Today we'll, we'll be starting James chapter 1, and we will, we will read down to verse 8. We won't get through all of James chapter 1, I mean, uh, this, this section today. We'll do part of it to, um, today and the other part tomorrow, um, tomorrow, next Sunday. All right. I started thinking I was back in the, the real uh, church. Well, they met every single day. All right. We can do that if y'all want. We can start meeting every day. <laughs> so we'll, we'll focus on part of, of this section today, and next Sunday we will finish this up. But the message that we will see today from James and that we'll finish up next Sunday, I want to focus on the idea how to handle trials, how to handle trials. Let's read this, this section together and then we'll pray. It reads, James, a, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tri tribes with our, which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. <clears throat> if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Father, we thank you today for allowing us again to come and to hear your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we hear your word, that you would, would touch them in a way uh, that gives us insight and understanding uh, like we've never received before. I pray that you would allow these words to live in our hearts and minds and that we would get a better understanding of the trials and adversity and sufferings that we all face as a natural part of life. Help us not to see trials and adversity and suffering as an enemy, but help us to see them as James sees them, as a good gift from a good father to conform us to the image of his son. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want us to see um, before I jump into this passage is in verse 2, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You see that? I want you to look at verse 12. And verse 12 reads, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. What you don't see in English is that the same exact word 
is used in verse 2 that is used in verse 12. In verse 2 is translated trials, and in verse 12 is translated temptations. And what we will see, and we'll break this into two different sections, is that James chapter 1 is all about the same thing. Perasmos is the Greek word. If it's viewed as an external circumstance, it is a trial, it's adversity, it's suffering, something that is external to you that tries you on the inside. If it is something that starts on the inside of you, right, it is a temptation. It is something that is drawing me away to sin. Okay. So first, we're going to see <laughs> What's funny about that? <laughs> we'll focus on verses 1 through 8, how to handle trials. And then when we finish, we will start in verse 12 and talk about how to handle temptations. We'll focus on how to address external tests that come our way. And then we will focus on the internal tests that come our way. All right? So today... We're going to focus just on trials, adversity, and sufferings that come our way. It has been said that, that everyone is either going through something, coming out of something, or about to go through something. Okay, you've heard that? Even with me saying that, uh, those three phrases, um, they deeply resonate with us. Um, most of us are probably allowing our minds to run back to something that we have recently been through or that we are currently going through. Though we are all different, coming from diverse backgrounds and having various experiences, life has taught us all that adversity and trials are a natural part of life. As Job put it, Man who is born of woman is of a few days and full of troubles. Whether you are one or 100, every human being is subject to the daily pressures of life that often feels like they are draining every drop of joy and pleasure that we have in this life. It often seems that no matter how much we try to plan and prepare, Murphy's Law always kicks in. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Accidents, birth defects, cancer, job loss, recessions, divorce, auto repair bills, weekly routines, too many bills. <laughs> or an overbearing supervisor. We can add to that list needing a hip replacement, right? Having eye surgery. We can, we can add all of these things to the list. This list can go on to infinity and beyond. But all of these things, all of these pressures reinforce the fact that adversity and trials are a natural part of life, at least a part of life since the fall of Adam and Eve. 
Since adversity is a natural part of life, the question that we must all answer for ourselves is how do I handle trials when they come my way? How do you handle trials when they come your way? Do you avoid them like the plague? Do you go through them kicking and screaming, murmuring and complaining? Do you patiently endure them until God releases you from them? Or do you see them as a good gift from a good father meant to increase your faith? Now, um, if you are like me, you go through all four of those things <laughs> every single time you go through something. Okay, um, I, I, I often start off trying to avoid suffering like the plague, right? I, I see it coming, I go the other direction. Right. I hear God speaking, Lord, that is not your will. That's the devil. Right. And then when that doesn't work, then the Lord has to drag me along, kicking and screaming, kicking and screaming, right? Murmuring and complaining all the way. Right. Then, you know, it kicks in, you're supposed to be a pastor. You gotta, you gotta set the example. And so I go through it quietly and patiently. But in my head, I'm still kicking and screaming. Right? <laughs> By the end, I recognize, as David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted so that I would not go astray. James is trying to help us to see that every trial, every adversity, all of our sufferings, they are not our enemies, but they are a good gift from a good father who is trying to do something in each of our lives. And every single one of us will experience a different trial, a different suffering, a different adversity, because each one of us are different, and God knows exactly what each one of us needs to get us where he wants us to be. James here says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. James is writing to a, a group of believers who knows a thing or two about suffering. He wrote, if we look back in verse 1, that he is writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And most likely, this is a reference to Jewish Christians who had been dispersed and living outside of Palestine. These believers had experienced untold sufferings and trials. I want you to really quickly turn with me back to the book of Acts. Um, and, and this is, um, helps us with, with dating of the book, right? Uh, most people believe that uh, the book of James is the first book of the New Testament to be written. Um, most people believe that it was written in the early 40s, okay? Um, I even have read one author, um, Zane, uh, I think it was Zane Hodges, who um, believes that the book could have been written as early as the late 30s, okay? Um, We're going to look in Acts chapter 8, 
because these believers had experienced many trials, starting with the martyrdom of Stephen, right? Remember, he was stoned to death. And from then on, Saul began to persecute the church. And what we see, remember, in James chapter 1, he says that he is writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, okay? The same word is used here in Acts chapter 8 of what is done to the people when Saul begins to persecute them, right? The, the same uh, the, the, the word, is the root, same root word is used. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Skip down to chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 reads, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Imagine this is your life. You're trying to live your life in peace. You go to work every day to try to provide for your family. You try to raise your children the best way you can. And one day, due to no fault of your own, someone kicks down your door and they either arrest you or kill you and your only crime is that you're a Christian. Imagine that you hear about the persecution coming and the only way for you to save your family is to run for your life and you have to leave everything behind. Your house the job that you've worked at for decades, all of the possessions that you've accumulated over your life, every single thing you've worked for, family, friends, communities, you have to leave everything. And you go to a country where you live a transient life and you keep facing oppression from those who are rich and powerful. That's the situation that the audience of James finds themselves in. Now imagine you're in this situation and you receive a letter from your pastor. You, you open it thinking that your pastor is going to write something that deeply resonates with the pain that you're experiencing. And you open the letter and you read these words, count it all joy when you go through various trials. You, you cannot believe your eyes, so you read it a second time. Count it all joy when you go through various trials. And you think your pastor has lost his mind. <laughs> Count it all joy 
I just lost everything. My house, my family, some of my family members have, have died. I've lost everything I've worked for. And you tell me to count it all joy? How is it that we can learn to face any adversity, any level of suffering, any trial as a joyful occasion? James is trying to teach us that in this passage, he is telling us that in order for us to count any trial joy, you have to learn how to think differently. The word count means to think, to consider, or to regard. James is trying to get his audience and us to evaluate our viewpoint on suffering. And the truth is, we will never learn to handle trials well if we don't first learn how to think appropriately about our trials. There's a Buddhist proverb, and I'm giving you this Buddhist proverb, not because I'm um, uh, 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 agreeing with any of the tenets of Buddhism. I just think that this works very well with what James is trying to tell us. All right, so so don't don't pass out here preaching Buddhism. Okay, no, no, I'm not. Okay, <laughs> okay, I, don't come back. Yo, no, that's you know that's not what I'm trying to get you to do. All right, so the 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 proverb is this: pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I think that this proverb is trying to teach us the same thing that James is trying to tell us when he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He's trying to tell us that our suffering will be minimized if we learn to think correctly about our circumstances. You will suffer pain in this life. That's inevitable. When, when, when all of the ligaments in your hips wear down and you are bone to bone, right? right? You are not saying pain is optional. I feel no pain. Okay? You, you feel it. Okay, okay. You you feel that you feel that pain. Okay. Okay. And and the first thing that goes through your mind is not to count it all joy, is it? <laughs> okay. So I'm not saying that all of our pain is good. Pain is terrible. It is not God's perfect will for us. He wanted us to live in a place where there was no suffering, trials, or adversity, but we sin, and we continue to sin. So pain in this fallen world is mandatory. You will hurt, as Jesus said himself, right? Anyone who desires to live godly will suffer persecution, okay? So pain in this life is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Suffering is how we see the circumstance that we're going through. Right? You can go through the same circumstance, right, as someone else, the same identical circumstances, and have two completely different responses. Why? Because it is all in how we think about our circumstances. 
James goes on to explain why Christians should think joyfully when they experience various trials. He says, verse 3, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. And, and all of these things are on the bullet, bullet pointed on the outline that I have given you. He says, Christians should count it all joy when they fall into various trials because trials test our faith in order to produce patience. James doesn't want us to be blind about our circumstances. James doesn't want us to be stoic about our circumstances. He doesn't want us to go through life ignoring the pain that we experience. James tells us two things that we must know and that we must hold in the front of our minds if we are to joyfully experience adversity. First, he tells us that our trials are simply a test of our faith. And second, he tells us that God has a goal in mind. <clears throat> and we must keep both of these things in the forefront of our minds if we are ever to see trials as a good gift from a good father. All of us in this room, living in America, has experienced some level of education. And the one thing that is consistent in education is that you will be tested. Okay. Your teacher teaches something, he or she expects you to learn a skill. And to make sure that you have gotten a very good grasp of that skill, they give you drills and homework and quizzes and unit tests, and final exams. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I understand uh, today you don't have to take any of those and you'll still get a 50. Okay. God does not work like that. Okay. <laughs> you do not get an automatic 50 in God's classroom. Okay. <laughs> you will fail. And if you find yourself wondering, why do I keep going through the same thing over and over and over again? It's because you keep failing. Okay. <laughs> God does not run heaven like Baltimore City Schools. Okay. 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 <laughs> and 60 and above is not passing. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. You will keep taking these tests and quizzes, and unit exams, and finals, until you pass the test. By way of an analogy, Christians are also being educated. Only our school is real life, and God is our master teacher. Every day, he desires to teach us something from our textbook. That is the Bible. There's only one problem. And that problem is simply this. Most Christians are comfortable where they are. We have reached a particular level in life, and we feel like, hey, I've reached my plateau. Let me just enjoy the ride until I get to heaven. Okay. God doesn't think that's a, God does not agree with your assessment. 
<laughs> right? God is not sitting around thinking, hey, they've reached this level of spiritual maturity. I think I'll just leave them alone, right? God just sometimes calls Satan over and says, have you considered my servant Larry? <laughs> you know, I feel like that, that song back in the 90s. I'm just chilling in my crib, minding my own business, <laughs> right? And, and, and God just sends the devil my way. That is because, as 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, God does not look on the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And when we think that we have it all together on the outside, God is able to see the impurities and the deficiencies in our hearts. And so, as a good father, not wanting to leave his children in that condition, he sends us tests and trials and sufferings in order to perfect us. He knows what is in our hearts, and he tests us so that we can know what is in our hearts as well. Because for some reason, we always think that we're better off than we really are. And without these tests, as I said, we always think we are better than we really are. God will always test his people. And this is a universal principle. Before God gives you anything, he will always put you to the test. He may give you promises. He may give you a vision. But before he allows you to fulfill that, he will always put you to the test. Think about these examples. He tested Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember, he puts Adam in the garden, and then he tells him, of every tree you can freely eat, just don't eat from this one tree. It was a test. And then Satan shows up, and he, he tests them, and they what? They fail. I want you to really quickly turn to Genesis chapter 22, because not only did God test Adam and Eve, he also tested Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God. He was someone who was a man of faith. He trusted God, and yet God still tested him. Genesis chapter 22, most of us are familiar with the story here. We know that God tells Abraham that he's going to have a child, even though his wife is barren. And Abraham has to wait 25 years before God fulfills this promise. And eventually, God gives him this child. Right. We know he did it his own way. Right. That didn't work out too well for him. But God gives him this this promised child. And he loves this child. Around the age of 12. Abraham is chilling in his tent, minding his own business. And God says, get up. And sacrifice your son, your only son, the one that you love. What do you do? Abraham, we know as a man of faith, he gets up. He takes his son to the place that God tells him. And listen to what God says in verse 12. Genesis 22, verse 12. He tells him, and he said, do not lay your hand on the lad 
or do anything to him. Why? For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He was testing Abraham to see if he really feared God or not. If you were to ask Abraham, do you fear God? Of course I fear God. God means everything to me. I'll give God anything he asks. Kind of like us. Lord, anything you want from me, I'll do. Sacrifice your, your child to me. Uh, that ain't from the Lord. The Lord would never ask me something like that. Lord, I'll do anything for you. Quit your job and go be a missionary in Peru. I love Jesus, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I must have ate something last night. That wasn't from the Lord. <laughs> All right. Lord, I'll give you anything. Buy groceries for your enemies. See, you know the Lord. He knows my heart. He knows my heart. He knows I love them, but, you know, that, that, that the Lord, he just don't know. I'm not there yet. <laughs> right? He's still working on me. <laughs> you see, prior to the test, everyone believes that they fear the Lord. But then the test comes to let you know where you really are. Not only did he test Abraham, um, um, Adam and Eve, not only did he test Abraham, but he also tested the Israelites. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And listen to what he says in verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And, read this with me, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? to humble you and to test you, to humble you and to test you, to humble you and to test you. Why did you leave us in this wilderness for 40 years, Lord? To humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. I have a land flowing with milk and honey for you. There are houses that you don't even have to build. There are vineyards there for you that you don't have to plant. And all you have to do to receive my promises is to obey my commands. Lord, I will obey your commands. I got the mega millions number for you, and I will give it to you if you obey all my commands. Lord, you know I'm going to obey your commands. <laughs> <laughs> Let me test you to make sure. I want you to stay here for just a little while. How long, Lord? Just 40 years. And in these 40 years, you won't have to plant gardens or, or find food. I'm going to drop bread from heaven every single morning. And I'm going to send the wind to blow, and, 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 and animals are just going to come your way. Quail is going to come your way. You'll have bread to eat. You'll have all the meat that you need. 
Your clothes won't grow, um, won't, won't, um, will grow with you, and your shoes will grow with you, so you won't need new clothes or new shoes. Everything is provided for you. God, that's not good enough. They spent 40 years murmuring and complaining. I don't want that bread. That's all we got to eat. I know I got clothes to wear, Lord, but I want better clothes. I want red bottom shoes. <laughs> he left them in the wilderness. He had many blessings for them, but he had to test them so that he could know what was in their hearts. I don't think God needed to know what was in their hearts. He already knew. They needed to know what was in their hearts. So he humbled them and allowed them to hunger and fed them with manna, which they did not know, nor did their fathers know, that he might make them know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, the test is not meant to harm you. Each trial and adversity was specifically designed to test the faith of the one or the ones with whom God is dealing. He tested Adam and Eve to see if they would remain in this righteousness that he had given them. He tested Abraham to see if he truly feared God the way he said he feared God. He tested the Israelites who, when they were at the mountain, said that they would obey every single one of God's commands, and then immediately they ran out and had orgies and worshipped idols. Taylor was like, what? <laughs> we're going to go back to the PG-13 version. <laughs> right. But hey. The Bible is true. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Okay. But he tested them to see if they would be obedient, just like he tests us to see if we will be obedient, if we will fear the Lord, if we will walk in his ways. And the tests are not designed for our failure. They are designed for our success. This Greek word here for trials, um, perosmos, Originally, it was used of pharmaceutical trials, right? You know, a drug test. You, before they put a particular drug on the market, they do, they do trials, right? They bring in a group of people, and they give this drug to each person because they're not trying to kill the person, right? They're not trying to give a disease to the person. What they're trying to do is see how the person will respond to the drug with the goal of producing a product that will help other people. Right? So this is the idea behind this word parasmos, this word trial. God is giving us something to see how we will handle it. The goal is not for us to fail. The goal is for us to succeed. But that is up to us. The question that most of us are asking is, why does my faith have to be tested? 
Why can't God just take my word for it? I had this conversation with someone a couple a couple of Saturdays ago in, in the cell groups, and we were um, talking about um, that the Bible repeatedly, you know, looks at our actions, right, to determine if we're really truly saved, right? So I don't know what's in your hearts. So the only way that I know if you are a genuine believer is if your life looks like Jesus. And if your life does not look like Jesus, I'm not saying that you aren't saved. I'm just saying I don't know if you are. <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay? And so if someone had, a, had an issue with, uh, with this, and so we were talking afterwards, and, and they were saying, well, well why, is it, why does my behavior matter? You know, why can't you just take my word for it? Well, I don't know. I mean, sometimes people lie. <laughs> I don't know. You know? Or sometimes people are telling us the genuine truth. We believe with all of our hearts that we truly love God. We believe with all of our hearts that we truly fear God. We believe with all of our hearts that we want him and only him. But the only way for us to truly know is when the test comes. So to the question, why does my faith need to be tested, I believe that James really gives us the answer by the various terms that he uses in James chapter 1. He uses several words in the different um, verses. One, he says that the testing of your faith produces patience, but, verse 4, let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In verse 6, he uses the word doubting. In verse 8, he uses the word double-minded, and he uses the word unstable. Really quickly, let me give you these definitions. Don't worry about jotting these down. I can give them to you at, at another time. First, perfect means to be full-grown, mature, unblemished, undivided, without defect. Complete means to be complete, whole, and ethically free from sin. Lacking nothing means to fall short, to lack, or to be in need of something. Doubt, doubting means to doubt, waver, or to be divided against yourself. Double-minded means to be irresolute, doubting, and hesitating. And unstable means to be unstable, inconstant, or restless. Now, if we were to take all of these words into account, James is telling us that our faith needs to be um, um, tested because of our divided hearts. When he says that you need to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and these words mean to be, to be whole in the sense of being undivided, that means that there is a, a divide in our hearts. When he says that someone is a double-minded man, the Greek word there, dipsukos, literally means two souls. Someone who is unstable is someone who is vacillating back and forth, and therefore they don't have a firm grip on the ground. Each of us, 
no matter how much we love the Lord, in some sense, our hearts are divided. Our hearts are divided amongst many things. If you think back to Paul, Paul says that a person who is married, they can't give their full attention to the Lord because they have to care about the things that pertain to their spouse. But a person who is unmarried, right, they have no spouse, they can fully devote themselves to the Lord. They can be undivided in their service to God, whereas someone who is married, their service to God is going to be divided between God and peace of mind. <laughs> Why are you at the church seven days a week? I'm just trying to serve the Lord. I'm just trying to serve the Lord. You know, you need to come home and cut the grass. Jesus didn't say, "Thou shalt cut the grass." You know, right? <laughs> okay, right. So you're you're going to be divided in some sense. All of us, all of us, are going to be divided in some way. Now. For some of us, right, that division is based on us, right? We're driven for certain things. We want to want to work to have certain things in life. But 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 for the, for, for the most part, to be honest, some of these blemishes are not our fault. We have all grown up in households run by fallen human beings, right? They tried their best to do what was right for us. But as fallen human beings in fallen worlds, in a fallen world, they were just working with what they had. And they fell short. They were supposed to, our parents were supposed to develop us into full grown, emotionally, mentally, and socially stable adults. I don't have to say anything else. <laughs> but we live in fallen households. So all of us, in some way, emotionally, did not get everything that we needed. All of us, in some way, did not get what we needed mentally. All of us, in some way, did not get what we needed socially. And so we have these flaws in our hearts and minds. If statistics are accurate, many of us grew up in homes either without a father or in a home with a father who was not emotionally present. Some of us have grown up wondering the question, who is my father? And some of us have asked not only who is my father and what is he like, some of us have, have, have wondered all of our lives, what is wrong with me that my father did not love me? Your mother did the best that she could, but she was always stressed out because she was trying to be both parents and the provider. And so something had to go lacking, something emotional, mentally, and social. You have grown up now, but if the truth be told, you still have emotional blemishes that cause you to waver in your faith 
wondering if you can depend on your heavenly father. Right? Because your father is supposed to teach you what God is like. And if my father was not there for me, how am I supposed to think about God? So we feel that I can't depend on God. I, I have to do this myself. So when God says, trust me and I'll do it, you always in the back of your mind are thinking about, I need a plan B. Some of us grew up poor. And I mean, some of us were so poor, we was poor. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> I remember I, my, my grandmother's 95. My grandfather is set with, um, was 70 years older than, um, than she was. And I remember asking them before, what was it like to live through the Great Depression? Right? I'm just, I was, I'm interested in knowing. Well, what was that like? My, I will never forget my grandfather's response. He said, we didn't know it was a, <laughs> it was a depression. We just thought that was normal life. <laughs> Nothing changed for them on the farm in South Carolina. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Nothing had changed. This was everyday life. Okay. Some of us struggle with just having the basic necessities. Some of us understand what Jesus meant when he said, pray, give us this day our daily bread. We really under, we, we know Jesus was literal when he was saying that, right? We, we just, I don't know where my food is coming from <laughs> tomorrow. I just got to focus on the day. Now that we are all grown up, we still doubt whether or not God is going to provide for us. So some of us hoard every single penny that we have. We hoard every single penny. I'm going to tell a joke. I'm not going to say who it was. Somebody in this room growing up was sitting on their steps counting their money. And somebody ran up and grabbed a penny, a penny, a penny. <laughs> <laughs> off the step. They chased them down the street. The person got hit by a car. <laughs> they took their penny, didn't check on them, walked back to the steps and kept counting. <laughs> True story. I'm not lying. make sure that we can take care of ourselves. Some of us have the opposite response, right? That we grew up so poor, now that we have money, right? I want to show it off. I got status. I wear everything I have on my back. Because we're trying to overcompensate for our emotions and our mental state and our lack of social skills. And we soothe those things by being shopaholics. Regardless of whether I describe you in any of these stories, each one of us has a story. Life has a way of beating us up and spitting us out. Or as my counseling professor would say, we live in a fallen world and it often falls on us. We come to church smiling, 
But all of us are dealing with fears and doubts and inconsistencies in our lives. But we have a loving Father. And he will not leave us in this condition because he has a goal in mind for every single one of us. The problem is that God's goal and our goal are often at odds with each other. We <laughs> just have temporal goals, right? We want our best life now. Okay. We want, I want my best life. And I want it now. <laughs> right? Can't can't wait for it. If I if I can't get it now, right, I'm gonna have to go do something else. But I, I want my best life now. We want health, wealth, and prosperity. We want to follow the path of least resistance. If there's conflict, that's not the will of God. <laughs> right? Because we all know that if it's God. There won't be any problem. It'll be all smooth. We want our best life now. We want health, wealth, and prosperity. We want the path of least resistance. But that's not God's goal. I want you to turn with me to the Romans chapter 8. God has one goal. And it is not a temporal goal. It is an eternal goal. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. God has one goal, and it is an eternal goal. It's all that he is up to in each one of our lives. And if we are, to um, are able to grasp this one thing, that this is what God is working on, it will help us when we go through trials. Is everyone in Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. One verse, verse 29, it reads, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's all God is up to. God is trying to conform you to the image of his son. God will use all of his blessings to conform you to the image of his son. And when that does not work, he will send you every trial, every pain, every adversity to help you on your way. God's goals are always accompanied by the means with which he will accomplish those goals. And in God's infinite wisdom, he has decided that the best way to conform us to the image of his son is through suffering. You will notice that this verse in Romans 8.29 about us being conformed to the image of his son is set in the context of suffering. Look back at verse 12. This whole section is talking about glorification, and we will be glorified by our suffering, the same way Jesus said to his disciples when they did not understand that he would be crucified, he says, was not the Christ to suffer and then enter his glory? Verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are dead to us, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, live by, if you by the spirit um, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we have cried out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. He goes on to say, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which we shall receive. And then he continues. You see, this whole idea of being conformed to the image of his son is set in the total context of our suffering. If you want to look like Jesus, if you want to talk like Jesus, if you want to think like Jesus, if you want to live like Jesus, the only way for you to be conformed to his image is you have to suffer just as he suffered. He says, no servant is greater than his master. If they have hated me, they will also hate you. Anyone who desires to live godly, he says, will suffer persecution, Paul says. Suffering, trials, and adversities are not our enemies. They are the tools in God's hand to bring about his goal. As A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Root of Righteousness, he gives this, in, this illustrate, um, illustration about, um, about a hammer, um, a file, and a furnace. It reads, it was the enraptured Rutherford who could shout in the midst of serious and painful trials, praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. The hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had feelings and intelligence, could present another side to the story. For the nail knows the hammer only as an opponent, a brutal and merciless enemy who lives to pound it into submission, to beat it down out of sight, and to clench it into place. That is the nail's view of the hammer, and it is accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the hammer is held by the workman, and all resentment toward it will disappear. The carpenter decides whose head shall be beaten next. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, the, and which hammer shall be used in the beating. That is his sovereign right. When the nail has surrendered to the will of the workman and has gotten a glimpse of his benign plans for its future, it will yield to the hammer without complaint. The file is more painful still, for its business is to bite into the soft metal, scraping and eating away edges till it has shaped the metal to its will. Yet the file has in truth no real will in the matter, but serves another master as the metal also does. It is the master and not the file that decides how much shall be eaten away, what shape the metal shall take, and how long the painful filing will continue. Let the metal accept the will of the master, and it will not try to dictate when and how it should be filed. As for the furnace, it is the worst of all. Ruthless and savage, it leaps at every combustible thing that enters it and never relaxes its fury till it has reduced 
all to shapeless ashes. All that refuses to burn is melted to a mass of helpless matter without will or purpose of its own. When everything is melted that will melt and all is burned that will burn, then and not until then, the furnace calms down and rests from its destructive fury. To use A.W. Toza's example, we are the nails and the piece of metal. The hammer, the file, and the furnace are the trials that God uses to shape and mold us. But as was stated in the story, unless the nail and the metal come to trust and submit to the will of the workmen, they will always complain and not be able to see the end that the workman has in mind. God has a plan in your trials. He's trying to make something of you, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship, right? He, he's working something in each one of our lives, and he chooses whose head gets beaten next. <laughs> okay? And he picks the hammer that will beat you. But when you recognize that the workman has a plan that he's trying to accomplish, you won't complain about it. You will submit to his will. James says that the workman sends us trials to test our faith with the goal of producing patience. As the word patience suggests, we lack patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, and perseverance. We are fickle. We are spiritually bipolar. Right? We are spiritual manic depressives. Right? God is good. Yes, God is good all the time. And then one thing happens. You be like, oh God. Oh, oh, oh I don't I don't know. Oh, I can't make it. I can't make it. Oh, we fall out on the floor. You know. We we just fall all to pieces at the smallest things. Spiritual bipolar. <laughs> God is, a, there is nothing God cannot do, right? With God, all things are impossible. Okay, well, here's a pink slip. Oh, God, how can you pay my bills? I need a job. <laughs> okay. right. Is anything too hard for God? He, he, he got you one job, right? I mean, you, you, you don't think that he can't get you another one? <laughs> okay. But we fall to pieces over every single simple thing. We say we trust God and his promises while all the while holding on to our plan B. I'm going to trust God, but if he does not come through when I want him to come through and how I want him to come through, I got plan B in my back pocket. That's not faith. If you are trusting God but holding on to plan B, I'm, I'm going to fix this like Abraham. God, I'm waiting on your promised child. Okay, well, let me go find Hagar. Maybe I can help God out. <laughs> okay. 
If you're trusting God but holding on to a plan B, you are not walking in faith. And the trial is coming to show you the places where you are not really trusting God. Remember, this whole section, this whole book is about faith. When we experience constant spiritual meltdowns, it is because our mind, our will, and our emotions are divided. They are not in agreement. They're not on the same page. And God desires for us to be whole. And the only way for God to make us whole is to systematically and continually overload our spiritual muscles so we can progressively build up the ability to stand up under the weight of life's challenges. Now, I'm using this um, exercise analogy. Y'all probably laughing because you know I don't, I don't like exercise, right? But um, when I was exercising, okay, <laughs> right. when, I, when, I, when I did attend the exercise classes at, at the dojo, one of the things that the sensei would do is that he would start me off with light weights lifting. And then, you know, the next time I came in, he said, all right, take this 40-pound bar. And I'm like, okay, well, how many, how many reps? A hundred. What? It's, it's light. We'll wrap it a hundred times. I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. I, I just did push-ups, burpees. My arms are jello. And you want me to lift this 40-pound weight a hundred times. Yes, because I'm trying to overload your muscles. I'm trying to push you to the max and then go beyond that. So that after you rest and repair your muscles, you'll be stronger. I don't like that plan. <laughs> I want to just keep repping this 10-pound, this little 10-pound bar. I feel strong right here. <laughs> you know, I could do this. I could do this all day. <laughs> but God knows the next trial that's coming your way. And if all you can lift is 10 pounds and a 40-pound trial is coming, you are in trouble. So God starts you with the 10 pounds, and then he moves you on to the 20 pounds. Then he moves you on to the 30 pounds. So that when the 10 pound comes, he, he, he's holding the bar. Right? Because once I got to about 75, I'm like. <laughs> he's like, nope, keep pushing, keep pushing. And so he's holding the bar. He's, he's helping me with it. But you're going to get these next 25. Okay. God is going to hold the weight with you, but you have to push the bar. That's what trials are for. It is to progressively overload your spiritual muscles so that you are able to face the next trial that comes your way. God is working in us the characteristic of one who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. That is what the word patience means here. Someone who faces adversities, who faces trials and does not run, they remain loyal to the one who has called them. 
And in order to bring you to the place of unswerving loyalty, God is willing to bruise you. In his book titled Broken Things, M.R. Dehan tells the story of a little piece of wood. He writes, a little piece of wood once complained bitterly because its owner kept whittling away at it, cutting it, and filling it with holes. But the one who was cutting it so remorselessly paid no attention to its complaining. He was making a flute out of that piece of ebony, and he was too wise to desist from doing so, even though the wood complained bitterly. He seemed to say, little piece of wood, without these holes and all this cutting, you would be a black stick forever, just a useless piece of ebony. What I'm doing now may make you think that I am destroying you, but instead I will change you into a flute and your sweet music will charm the souls of men and comfort many, of, um, of sor uh, many a sorrowing heart. My cutting you is the making of you. For only thus can you be a blessing in the world. See, sometimes it's painful when God is sending us trials. But God knows the beautiful music that we will make when the trial is over. And sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, God is willing to bruise us and let us allow, to allow us to go through suffering so that he can make us better. I want to end this to sum this part up because I'm trying to get us to see, to have a, a proper understanding of, of trials and adversity in our lives. Um, and then next week we'll come back and we'll finish up what, what, what James has to say about this, um, what, these, what happens inside of us when we face these, these adversities. But look at Romans chapter 5. Paul sums this up beautifully here, speaking the same language that James is speaking. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul is talking about how our faith triumphs in trouble. He says in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we glory in tribulations. What? <laughs> we glory in tribulations? Paul, what you talking about? <laughs> he says, not only that, we glory in tribulations, knowing, remember what, what James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, right? Paul says, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Tribulation causes you to endure and to stay in it so that you don't run every time something happens. Tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, when you learn to stand firm and stop running, right? Perseverance produces character. The external trial is working something on the inside of you. Not too many people have self-discipline, right? It's, it's something that we, that we just naturally hate. We lack it. 
Most people don't have self-discipline. So how do we develop self-discipline? If I lack self-discipline, can I hold myself accountable to discipline myself? No. I need an alarm clock. I need an accountability person. I need consequences to help me develop this internal character that I lack. And that is what trials do. They are something that is external to us that produces some internal character in our lives. Paul says, tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint, right? Hope does not disappoint. We know because of our faith, God will do what he says he will do. He may take a long time to do it. Lord knows his clock runs on a different schedule than here on earth. You know, God's clock must be on permanent daylight savings time. I don't understand, Lord. Wow. You know, they say, you, you know, you, you may not come when you want to. But does that have to be every time? <laughs> right? You know. But it produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. We can rest confidently knowing that when God sends us adversities, trials, and sufferings, he is doing it because he's trying to replicate the character of Christ in us. And since the author of Hebrews says that even Jesus, being God himself, learned obedience through the things that he suffered, can it be anything different for us? Trials, as I have said, is not our enemy. I started this off by saying that every single one of us is either going through something, right, just got out of something, or about to go through something. And in order for us to pass the test, we have to begin looking at our trials correctly. We have to see whatever we have just gotten out of that we're currently in or about to go in, we have to see that as a good gift from a good father. And if we are able to see it as a good gift from a good father, even though it's painful, we don't have to suffer we can allow, as we'll see next week, for patience to do its perfect work so that we can become perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Father, we thank you today for allowing us to come again and to, to hear your word. Lord, it is a difficult word because none of us want to suffer. None of us want to face adversity, and none of us want to experience trials. And yet, in a fallen world, in your infinite wisdom, this is the method that you have chosen to perfect your children. Lord, we don't run to pain, but when it comes, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see it correctly. Help us to see the trials 
not as something that is designed to take us out, but help us to see that it is something designed to make us better, something designed to purify us and, and to clean out all of the impurities just like when we refine silver or gold. Help us to see, as your word says, that we are tried like silver is tried. But when we are tried, we will come forth as pure gold. That is your goal. You are working for one thing, and that is to conform us to the image of your son. Now, pray, God, that you would help us to see Christ and all of his glory, but help us to know that he achieved that through suffering. And as Paul says, we will also reign with you as heirs, but we will also have to suffer. Help us when we suffer, not to murmur and complain and to run from you, but help us to embrace the trial that you have given us so that we can look more like your son. We thank you now for all of these things, even the pain, Lord. We thank you because it is a good gift from a good father so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. In the precious name of, of Jesus, we pray and ask all of these things. Amen.